all women experience iron deficiency anemia at some point in their life because of ongoing menstruation. Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, Maternal Mortality Reduction Academy. This is a feature of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. We are recording live from the rural city of Forsyth, Georgia. My name is Dr. Bola Sagadi. I'm a board-certified obstetrician, gynecologist, minimally invasive robotic gynecologic surgeon, and a proponent for natural child delivery. For this Akoko Pods podcast episode, we are fortunate to have with us today and fortunate because this is someone that has a strong passion for medical education to help improve current gaps in healthcare. We have Dr. Mawa Wafa Faroki from the University of Illinois Hospital and Health Sciences System, Division of Hematology and Oncology. So basically, Dr. Faroki is a blood disorder and cancer specialist. So Dr. Faroki, welcome. And can you introduce yourself and your background in hematology oncology, which is the study or the specialty of blood disorder and cancer? Thank you for having me on this Coco Pods podcast. I am happy to join you today. And a little bit of background on me, I am a hematologist-oncologist. I practice at the University of Illinois. I am in the adult hematology space for the most part. And I've been at University of Illinois for about two years now. It took me six years of training to get to where I needed to be through residency, three years of internal medicine, and three years of hematology-oncology fellowship training. Currently, my career focuses on classical hematology, specifically rare disease conditions such as sickle cell disease. And my research interest is women's health. Thank you. Before we go forward, I want to make a special mention and thank you to Professor Suze for making the connection, uh, Professor Sue, between uh, Dr. Mawa Faroki and myself and Coco Pods podcast. So thank you, Professor. So I present a real life scenario here. Aramide is a 28-year-old woman who just gave birth to her first child after a lengthy labor, a healthy baby girl. Her pregnancy went smoothly, but she experienced significant blood loss during the delivery due to a minor complication, a small tear during delivery. While she is overjoyed to welcome her baby and she is exclusively breastfeeding her baby, she starts experiencing symptoms of fatigue, weakness, cold hands and cold feet, dizziness when standing up, and feels short of breath in the weeks following childbirth. Dr. Faroki, you recently wrote some book chapters on the topic of postpartum iron deficiency. Can you share with us what happened to Aramide here? So the case that you present on Arimide, this is something that I do see often in my clinical practice, especially in women who are peripartum, either during their pregnancy or right after their pregnancy, you know, they start feeling symptoms. They may be iron deficient throughout pregnancy or even prior to pregnancy, but the symptoms are not showing up until much later after 
they deliver. And in Arimide's case, it looks like she has, most likely she has iron deficiency anemia. And this is due to all women experience iron deficiency anemia at some point in their life because of ongoing menstruation. Now, every person is different and they could bleed differently. As they're starting their menstrual cycle, they have adequate iron stores. But as they go through every year, they start losing more and more iron. Now, if you already don't have a good nutritional source of iron, you may be iron deficient from that standpoint. But also, if you're losing through your menstrual cycle, through labor and delivery, uh, sometimes they may have some complications and prolonged bleeding from that standpoint, as well as from being a new postpartum mom who does not have time to take the proper nutrition, well-balanced diet, who's breastfeeding, all of this may contribute to iron deficiency. And this is something that we often see in young mothers. Wow. Thank you so much for that answer. You know, there are other common hematologic women's health issues, that is blood conditions that affect women. Uh, for example, heavy periods, like you mentioned, postpartum hemorrhage in this patient that we just described, and then perimenopausal, around the time of menopause bleeding. I know you are working on another uh, big uh, situation with uh, menopausal women. And also women with sickle cell disease and thalassemia. You know, what happens to the other ladies that were not or have not been pregnant yet and they developed iron deficiency anemia? Can you specify other causes of iron deficiency anemia? So this is a very important point that you bring up. As I mentioned, you know, all of those causes could uh, cause iron deficiency anemia just from your regular menstruation, but also heavy menstrual bleeding. With, when women undergo menopause or the menopause transition, their periods are really variable. They may have multiple menstrual cycles within the span of 30 days, which may contribute to heavier blood losses. Also, in certain patient populations, especially our African-American patients, we do have more fibroids that we uh, see as they transition to menopause. They have fibroid-related heavy menstrual bleeding as well, which predisposes them to getting into iron deficiency anemia. The biggest thing that I do want people to think about is menstrual blood loss is not the only thing. Uh, while I'd like to highlight that because it's often ignored, there's also any kind of malignancy that's going on in the GI tract that may be causing iron deficiency anemia. And in a patient who's postmenopausal, who is no longer bleeding, who is no longer have menstrual bleeding, I do consider colon cancer potentially. And, you know, it may be early signs of colon cancer when you start seeing early iron deficiency. So that's something that's important to get worked up. Uh, in the United States, we're fortunate enough to have widespread screening. However, you know, in other settings with lower middle income countries, it's important to keep that differential on there. Uh, so if, there, if it is a polyp, if it's something early on, we can go after that because prevention is definitely better than cure. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we're going to pivot off a little bit. Um, with respect to your educational background, you did your medical school at Midwestern University, Chicago, College of Osteopathic Medicine. You did your residency at Midwestern University, 
Franciscan Health, Olympia Fields, Illinois. You did your fellowship at Midwestern University, St. Franciscan Health, and you are both certified in internal medicine, hematology, and oncology. And, you know, you're a female physician. What inspired you to train in this specialty of medicine? And I know before you talked about, I think there was a teacher and you did talk about your father, but can you tell us about all the things that inspired you to train in this specialty of medicine? So hematology oncology is a field. When I initially started out, I never thought I would do hematology oncology. I, I knew I wanted to do medicine later on. However, you know, when I started school, I was not the best student, uh, you know, and I mentioned this story earlier to you as well. I was not on top of my homework assignments. I I paid attention in class, but enough just to get by. I was the average student. And I had a teacher that pulled me aside and said, you know, you have, you really have the potential to do more. And, you know, that, that meant a lot to me. I had a high school guidance counselor. Um, they saw my testing scores and they said, hey, your testing scores are really good, but your grades don't correlate. What's the mismatch? Would you be interested in trying to do like a summer program? And after that, I could promise to get you in advanced placement classes. So that's kind of what my bridge was to get my act together, that one summer program. And I still remember her name. It was Mrs. Ware. And she really was the building foundation. I was really weak in language arts. You know, it was not something that I was really good at, even though my mom is an English literature major. I've never been very good with reading and things like that. So that summer program really helped me not only how to get better in terms of literature, but it also helped me figure out what it takes to be a successful student. And, you know, going back to family, you know, my dad was always a positive influence in my life. He would always say, you know, he would always be encouraging. Even when I was an average student, he would always say, you know, there's always next time. He was never harsh. He was, uh, you know, I was a middle child. So my parents were very focused on the oldest one and the youngest one. But with me, they were, you know, they, they always said there's a next time. And whenever the teacher said, you know, she's smart, she just needs to work hard. They would remind me of that. And Really, the true key to my success is my older sister. She was the she was the driving force. She would come with my parents to the parent teacher conferences. She would hear from my teachers, and then she saw my work at home and my work ethic. And you know, she really motivated me to be where I am. In fact, just this past year, you know, when whenever I'm ready to give up and I can't, I feel overwhelmed. I go to her, and she's like my pivot point again. And she's in always encouraging me to, you know, hey, look at things from a different perspective. If you can't do certain things, get rid of them and then refocus. So really, to this day, I'm fortunate to have a very, very helpful family that's supportive in my career and my personal life. And because of that, I'm able to, you know, continue doing what I do. Wow, what a powerful story. I want to give a shout out, a big shout out to all the Mrs. Wares out there, all the teachers that see the diamond and the rubble for the students that they are taking care of, for all the parents out there that are just 
kind and supportive to their children. And for all the older sisters out there, I have a situation that my oldest daughter actually acts like your older sister to her siblings. So I just want to encourage people to support themselves with positive people, positive teachers. There are teachers out there that are not positive, but find a positive teacher, support yourself. Uh, parents, keep doing the great work you're doing. Big sisters, big brothers, keep doing the great encouragement, great work that you are doing, you know, you're going to produce a lot of Dr. Mawa Farukis, you know, uh, experts in their fields, writing grants, writing books, writing book chapters, you know, so I'm very grateful to you for sharing that story. So we'll go back on um, talking about screening and early detection. And you mentioned that briefly. What are the recommended screening methods for women at risk for iron deficiency anemia? And why are they essential? And I'm going to pivot to the second part of this question. Can you discuss the importance of early detection in improving outcomes for women with these conditions from a global perspective? So when we talk about you know the united states versus the global perspective there's different recommendations and there's different screening hurdles that we have to deal with unfortunately in the space of women's health we're not there yet not e not in the united states not on a global global level i know the world health organization is trying to promote women's health and trying to address peripartum anemia and iron deficiency anemia globally However, there's no unified recommendations for iron deficiency screening in women. There are several different organizations, especially the, the federal OB-GYN organization, FIGO, that you know has different recommendations when it comes to iron deficiency screening. But from a hematology standpoint, we really have not looked at women's health as much as I would like us to. So at this point, screening is really provider dependent. And unless patients are coming in symptomatic, many of our women are not getting screened, especially during their pregnancy. The gynecologists actually do a really good job of at least obtaining a ferritin level. They may not obtain the entire iron panel, but the gynecologists are at least doing the bare minimum. However, that has not spilled over into our primary care physicians. It's not spilled over into the hematologist. So I do think we have to put women's health in the forefront in terms of policymaking, both nationally and internationally. So my recommendations for screening would be, you know, every woman that's coming in to your office, every pregnant woman that's coming in, at least get a baseline transfer and saturation as well as ferritin. Now, I know in limited resource setting, we may not have the capacity to do all of that, but starting out with just the ferritin itself may help. Most of these women, when they are pregnant, they are typically getting at least one, one blood test, complete blood count, a CBC, and that will show iron deficiency, but that won't show iron deficiency until it's more progressive. That's why it's important to look at one of the markers for iron deficiency, which is ferritin, and that may give you an early indication of whether or not the patient has enough iron stores. And that's when you can start treatment, even before they're symptomatic, so that we don't run into problems of blood transfusions during pregnancy or after pregnancy. So 
uh, you know, prevention is always better than the cure. Wow. Thank you so much. Definitely for that. cheaper. Yes, yes. Thank you. And I like the fact that you said at times we really do need to start treatment even before things have plummeted down. You know, what are the latest advancements in the treatment of iron deficiency anemia in women? I know historically it's it has been from eating from iron pots, you know, historically. But what are the latest advancements in the treatment of iron deficiency anemia in women and how have they improved patient care? So how do the treatment options vary based on the individual's unique circumstances? So, you know, I will address the first question about, you know, treatment advances in terms of iron deficiency. All of it really goes back to the amount of resources and what your setting is. Now, if you have resources and you don't have insurance limitations, then there are a lot of new treatments that have come about that, you know, you could get Potentially, you could get IV iron, and it's a one-time dose, and it replaces your needs. However, in resource-limited settings, and also within the United States, patients may not have the best insurance. They may be underinsured or uninsured, and in those cases, we have to stick with the products that have been around for a longer time. And this is usually iron dextran or iron sucrose is what we typically use. Next episode. Being able to accommodate the patient five times in a busy clinic or a busy infusion center, that is difficult. On the patient's part, that is a barrier too. trying to come to a facility to get iron multiple times, which is why these one-time dosing formulations are very, very promising. 